Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is the Emory Law School professor and an expert on white-collar crime and RICO statutes in Georgia, as they might apply to Donald Trump, Morgan Cloud. Morgan, we're so glad to have you here. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our recent sponsors throughout our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, this week, Kansas saw its biggest star arrival since the Wizard of Oz, James Carville. Now, James, the Kansas Jayhawks aren't playing now, right. and you weren't out there to check on the crops. What were you doing in Kansas? Well, you know, I, the first of it, there, there's a candidate in, in Kansas, too, which is a Cook PVI, like, plus 10. And the guy's just one of the hardest-working, most diligent candidates, named Patrick Smith. He's 31 years old, uh, spent five years as a naval officer for five years. Uh, and he, he just, in, in the best way, kind of persistent and optimistic. And I did a fun, I attended a fundraiser for him in, in, in Manhattan, and he kept saying, please come to Kansas. And I, I like Patrick a lot. I think we have to support these really young people who have been, he's good. He's good. I mean, let me tell you, he, yeah. he's the hardest working freaking politician I've seen since Bill Clinton. And when I saw there's a ballot proposal in Kansas, and if you just stick with me for a little bit, I'll explain it to I you. I will. The Kansas Supreme Court in 2019, believe it or not, the Kansas Supreme Court is a majority Democratic ruled that the Kansas Constitution had enshrined the right for a woman to choose. The Kansas legislature, there's a Democratic governor in Kansas, but there's a supermajority of Republicans. And the legislature under Kansas law is the only people that can put an amendment to the Constitution called a ballot initiative. And these sneaky sons of bitches decided in, in always ballot initiatives that have overwhelmingly been held on a general election. Right. When more so, people vote. So these sneaky preachers and these lackeys in Topeka said, we got a better idea. Let's hold it on August 2nd because that's primary day in Kansas. Just, um, and I'm sure you're aware, but there, there are no Democratic primaries to speak of in Kansas because the Democrats are in a substantial minority. And there are tons of Republican primaries that will draw Republican voters out, right? And if you don't do anything, go online and read the language. that the, 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 they, they overdid it. The, the language is propaganda. And so this is going to be voted on. This is the first, the first time voters have actually weighed in after Dobbs. And right. I'm sorry, Supreme Court in this decision. system, right. the most important thing is not a panel, is not you and I bullshitting on this show, is not an op-ed piece, is not anything. It's an actual election. 
And this is almost a laboratory event where this is a, a deep red state with a, a real anti-abortion tradition, and the voters are going to vote on this. And I tell you, I, 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 you know, I, you could we could sit here all day and talk about when I've been wrong about things, but we got a shot here, okay? We got a shot. And if if this happens, it is going to reverberate through American politics like you understood as soon as I said it. You, you got it right away. Uh, it, 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 the, the Times has done a, a good story on it. It's only been one. The Post has only done one. It, it's not getting near the attention it deserves, which I think may be a good thing because it is getting attention in Kansas. People yeah. know what's going on. And we don't have the whole coastal freak show coming in there, and that's not what we need here. But in uh, the governor's people, I think, are, are, are quite good. They, they, they all come, most of them come out of sense of tester shop. So Tuesday, not not even a week from now, this is a, a huge election. I, I, I mean that. And, I, and you got it right away, Al. Yeah, I, I mean, boy, you, you know, you being out there, uh, I think, was a, was a real lift for them. The money is coming in, though. Oh. Uh, I worried about that a couple weeks ago. That's not a problem. And I think you're absolutely right. If the pro-choice side wins, and I, I still think that's a big if, but if yeah. they win, it, they're, they're going to be pro-life Republicans around the country recalibrating. They can't change their opposition to abortion, no. but they're going to look for nuances and exceptions. This week, even before that vote, we saw the intellectually challenged Republican senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, say now he supports exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother. And no, I wouldn't punish anyone crossing state lines to get an abortion. Uh, this will this will only only further push uh, those sort of... Uh, this will accelerate that. Yep. They know, and, and one of my, some of my guys, you know, and you've been around politics enough to know that all, all of the people in Topeka, you know, they all go to the same bars and restaurants, and that's the same shit. And they said that their body language is not good, and there's a real sense of, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done this. So you're I don't talking know. about the you're you know you're the, talking about the, the pro-life the, people, yeah, 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 but, yeah. You know, this is a a really high risk. Uh, and I got American Bridge to get involved, and I said, look, if, if we lose this, we don't lose, you know, not, not, no donor's going to be mad because we wasted, you know, $40 million in, in Kansas. But, boy, if we win this, <laughs> they're going to be very pleased with us. And, you know, it was, it's like a Doug Jones situation. And I, I, I do think, I'm not predicting anything, but I, I'm telling you, we got a shot. Well, and that is in 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 no one ever called Kansas politically any other color but red. No. Uh, they they have a Democratic governor, but that is the exception. Uh, I think their entire congressional delegation, I think, no, is, that's, that's, that's a, it's, there's uh, one woman. One, there's one, one, one yeah. it's a Native American. Yeah. Quite quite yeah. quite good. Yeah, she Davis, is, but she's not Johnson but both County. Both senators have. I think the last, you know it's been a long time since they've elected a Democratic senator. And, uh, you know, winning in Kansas, you're absolutely right, would be big. And, James, it underscores, again, I think, the arrogance of the court and Alito with their sweeping decision and their dismissal of any concerns. I, 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 I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I think there's just this horrible overreach. And hopefully the voters of Kansas, you know, slammed the lid of the cookie jar right on his hand. Right. right. I don't know, but, but I'll tell you what. You know, our next show 
it, it, you know, depending on the way, we'll talk about this one way or the other, but it, this is a huge event. There are a bunch of primaries next Tuesday, some of them pretty darn important, uh, like Arizona, but this is the biggest of them all. Biggest, this, is a, this is the big enchilada. This is big. It is. This it really is. Big. James, you're also, I think, upset with, with um, some critics of Democrats who have gone to certain states and districts and tried to help who they believe would be the most easily beatable Republican. You, you, you think that's perfectly well, fine? Well, okay. I, I, to be fair, I'll give you the argument. And okay. Adam Kinzinger makes the argument. Uh, I know John Avalon has, I think it was like David Brooks or Ross Duhart, one of the times thing, is that, look, you may be facing a wave here, and these Democrats are playing politics because they would rather run against Doug Mastriano perfect example. So Josh Shapiro ran ads, paid for them. Josh Shapiro, so, the Democratic nominee Democrat, for governor Thank you. The Democratic nominee. So you, you would run an ad saying that, you know, Mastriano stood up for Donald Trump and said it was out. His opponent, blah, blah, blah. And their argument, to be fair to them, is that democracy is at risk and the Democrats are playing a very dangerous game by elevating these anti, uh, what I call small D Democratic Republican extremist candidates because they could win. I, I, I profoundly disagree with that. And as a campaign manager, I never had any interest in the world other than helping my candidate win the election. And the D triple C is, is also involved in this and under heavy criticism because in a in Western Michigan, there was a Republican named Majeure, I may be mispronouncing his name. If, yeah, he voted if, for impeachment. I am, I yeah. apologize, who actually voted with, like, the uh, January 6th up. Right. And, of course, they're promoting the pro-Trumpist opponent because they think they have a chance to pick up a seat. I have no problem with that. Zero. I would do the same thing. I would do it without hesitation, equivocation, or reservation. If you are a donor to one of my candidates or one of my things, I got one job, and that's to do what I think is in the best interest of winning the election. But that that is a, a kind of big subterranean argument that's going on in American politics. Yeah. Is it ethical for Democrats to promote crazy-ass Republicans because they think it would be easier to beat. And, you know, Rush Limbaugh used to encourage Republicans to vote in Democratic primaries. There's it, it, a, a whole history of this in American politics, and it's not going away. And I just think this criticism is a bunch of, like, legal women voters crap, but that's me. Well, James, I agree. It's certainly not unethical. Uh, no. You know, and it's been done by both parties lots of times. Let me give you two examples, one current and one historical that I can't underscore the, the pluses and minuses of it uh, as a practical matter. In Maryland this year, just uh, a, a week ago, the Democrats really helped right-wing gubernatorial nominee Dan Cox defeat the candidate of the popular outgoing Republican Governor Larry Hogan. They ran ads, just like you said, saying that Dan Cox is too conservative, Dan Cox is too pro-Trump. Well, that's where most of the Maryland Republican voters right. are. Dan Cox won. And now uh, Larry Hogan says the election's over. The Democrat Wes Moore is going to win in November. So that's the good news and where it works. I'm old enough to remember in 1966, 
Democrats in California tried to hurt the popular San Francisco Mayor George Christopher, who was running in a gubernatorial primary. They, they he'd be really hard to beat, so they really did uh, things to you know mess him up a little bit in the primary, and he lost that primary. The problem was he lost it to Ronald Reagan, who not only wasn't easier to beat, but won two. Uh, gubernatorial statewide elections in California and two presidential elections he carried California. Right. So I don't think there's any ethical problem at all. I just think you all want right. to look at it I, and say, all right, does it make sense? And in many look, cases, it does. I don't know how effective it was. I mean, people say, well, Hillary wants to run against Trump. Well, they will nominate Trump anyway. I mean, right. it wasn't that, it, you know, I, I, I have to go back and look at the primary results. But, you know, we were wishing for for... for Reagan, you got him. He turned out to be, you know, enormously popular governor and president. Uh, it, but I don't, I don't know how much effect it had. But you, I don't either. It's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with it. Absolutely. Right? You try to do yeah. what you can to win a freaking election. Right. And if it made a difference in Maryland, you know, maybe Westmore would have won against the Larry Hogan-backed candidate. Maryland's basically maybe. a blue state. But but you now know, it's, maybe it didn't make any difference. Cox was going to win anyway. Right. But you try to do what you can. Yep. Yep. No, I, uh, I, okay. Uh, and I think, you know, something I'll tell you something. Walter Dellinger would approve of our ethical stand here. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, as we said, uh, Morgan, you are a foremost expert on Georgia law. The Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, has convened a grand jury, subpoenaed well over a dozen witnesses in a criminal probe, at least, into Donald Trump trying to sabotage the presidential election. You've followed this closely, I know. If you were in Mar-a-Lago, how worried would you be? <laughs> Well, I used to just live down the street from Mar-a-Lago, and in, in July, I'd probably be pretty worried because the weather is not so great. But um, uh, I think that Mar-a-Lago, from the political sense, uh, they should be very worried. Uh, and, and one reason for this is that the Georgia, you know, the, there's a kind of an institutional culture in the Justice Department, which makes it just harder, I think, for an institutionalist like the attorney general we have now to feel comfortable go investigating and prosecuting a former president and possible candidate in in the states, uh, that's just not the same. And so a, a local district attorney doesn't have that same kind of cultural constraint against investigating crimes, even by a president or a former president. Well, well, it would appear to me, Morgan, the January 6th committee gave her lots of useful information, more details about Trump pressuring Georgia's secretary of state from his own testimony and a lot of stuff on the fake electors. That's a that's a hell of a start for her, isn't it? I, I think that the, the January 6th committee hearings have been really important, not just for energizing the Justice Department, but for uh, deal, providing evidence that at least implies uh, a, a lot of uh, facts that could be proven that are relevant here in Georgia in the, uh, under the Georgia statutes, including the RICO statute, not just the RICO statute. So well, I well, do tell, think, us, uh, tell us about the RICO statute and, and how, I mean, she may well bring racketeering cases. Um, how, how different or easier, I guess I would say, is the RICO statute by Georgia state law than it is uh, under federal law? 
uh, you know, a majority of states have RICO statutes in their state laws now, and and they're essentially copied from the 1970 federal statute, uh, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization statute. And so they have many, many similarities, but there are some places where the Georgia statute is um, friendlier to a prosecutor trying to organize a case than the federal statute. And I'll just give you one example. The, the, uh, for a RICO prosecution, state or federal, to occur, there has to be a, something called a pattern of racketeering activities. Under the federal law, this pattern has a minimum of two racketeering acts within 10 years. In Georgia, it's, about, it's a shorter time period, four years. But the Supreme Court of the U.S. has interpreted uh, this pattern to include not just uh, people and schemes and goals that are interrelated, um, but also to have a time element. And there, in, in some cases, it must even be under the court's decisions, years of racketeering activity uh, to qualify uh, as a pattern. It's called the continuity uh, element of pattern. Georgia doesn't have that. Georgia has no, according to the Supreme Court, has no particular time limit imposed. Uh, so even if a period of November 2020 through January 2021 was considered not long enough under a federal investigation, in Georgia it is. There's just, there's no time issue. And on top of that, uh, the pattern under both statutes has to be two or more racketeering acts committed in the time period. Under the federal law, it's pretty clear that the two is a minimum requisite. It's required, it's necessary, but it's usually not sufficient. There usually have to be more than two racketeering acts. Um, and under the Georgia, the Supreme Court case law and Court of Appeals case law makes it absolutely clear that two is enough. Like two phone calls uh, would be enough to trigger the RICO statute. So this is a, a real boon to this investigation. Boy, that's an important distinction. James Carville. So, uh, so Professor, I uh, was not a very good law student. I'm kind of reminded of what Earl Long, the <laughs> government of Louisiana, said of the Attorney General of Louisiana, Jack Grimio. He said, if you want to hide anything from Jack, stick it in the law book. <laughs> 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 Which I thought was a, a but so in, in, I I was pre Rico in law school, but like every law student, I took criminal law and I, you know intent and and you know felony that you know you'd studied the armed robbery and and the lookout was was guilty as was the getaway driver, et cetera, et cetera. What is a Rico compared to what I, what I would think of as a traditional elements of a crime? How does RICO differ from what I learned back in the early seventies in law school? What what how does what hides it in a toolbox of a prosecutor? The uh, traditional criminal analysis that you've just described focuses upon you know individual crimes. Was there right. a bank robbery? Was there a murder? Uh, was there a case of extortion? And it focuses upon the individuals involved in specific crimes. So that's not the only thing. But that's really been the focus. And RICO takes a very different uh, perspective. It was conceived of by a, a guy named Bob Blakey, who was a Senate 
committee lawyer back in the 60s. And in, uh, to, Bobby Kennedy guy. Yeah, and Bobby and then on Bob Lickie's resume, you used to have pages of nice things said by Bobby Kennedy, as a matter <laughs> of fact. But um, uh, the point was to not just get the individual who committed a crime, but to try to go after an entire organization and dismantle it and dismantle it. And the target, you know, that the concept really had in mind the traditional East Coast mafia and one of the great RICO investigation and prosecution successes ultimately was the taking down of the Gambino family, for example. And that was the point, not to just arrest somebody and put one person in prison, but to find and create mechanisms for addressing the entire organization, its full range of activities, and the extent to which they aren't just committing solo crimes, but crimes that are related in terms of purpose or method or who the victims are. That And that's the goal of RICO. So that changes the focus of prosecutors from just the individual crimes, but putting it in the larger context. And, and that's particularly relevant to, in case, for example, the investigations of the post-2020 election, because you've got a range of individuals and organizations carrying out a whole lot of different activities. And one of the goals of the prosecutor will be to try to link them into an overall enterprise. So this is, to me, a delicious irony, and I don't know where it ends up, but when Rudy Giuliani was U.S. attorney, they used the RICO statute, and he got, I think, justifiable credit for really almost bringing down the mob. And it, it, it's sort of ironic that here we are, and there's some chance that Rudy Giuliani is going to get caught up in a RICO statute. I mean, am I wrong in saying that there's some irony here? It's kind of well, amazing. I don't think we probably have enough time for the show to talk about all the ironies involved in right, right, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Giuliani's career, but uh, <laughs> that's absolutely true. When In the 1980s, when he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York in Manhattan, uh, he was very active in a range of activities going after organized crime and having great effect at dismantling what at that time was the traditional New York uh, East Coast mob. And so that's absolutely clear. And and he's implicated in the Georgia, I would say the Georgia uh, proceedings uh, because of his appearances in Georgia, including a couple of times testifying before legislators. And so if, if the DA can link that to other actions by the, the Trump undertaking, uh, then he himself could be a RICO defendant, definitely. So before I turn over to Al, as I understand it, the, the current uh, DA for Fulton County is Fannie Willis. Yep. And she oversaw, the, and I've heard this, and you valid tell me I'm right or wrong, the prosecution of Atlanta schools case, which people claim to, told me, well, specifically Charlie Bailey, who was involved in it, said it's the most complex, one of the most complex criminal cases ever brought forward. Is is that a correct analysis of the Atlanta schools case? Yeah, and certainly in Georgia, that's true. I think the trial ended up being uh, six months in length. Uh, before trial, twenty-one people 
pled guilty. And at the 12 people were brought to trial and 11 were convicted. And it was a very, very complicated trial. And, and it establishes one principle that's important to note here. Because of the name, in particular, racketeering, and uh, in the title, we naturally think of this as being a mob kind of uh, organized crime kind of statute. But it's written in language that's much broader. And there's no requirement anywhere in the federal or state statutes that there be a mob connection uh, at all. Briefly, could you just give our listeners just a quick overview of what was entailed in this Atlanta schools case? It was was, uh, Georgia, like a lot of states, uh, implemented a system of standardized testing to try to measure the success of individual schools and individual teachers. And the Atlanta school system had employees who changed student test scores to try to improve the results for their individual schools. So administrators and teachers would be retained and would get raises and promotions and so on. And that was the racket. I mean, that was the kind of generalized fact setting for this racketeering prosecution. So it wasn't John Gotti. It was a school principal. And so it's clear that under this statute and the language of the statute makes clear that um, the the and I'll just quote the statute, uh, an enterprise applies to illicit, excuse me, illicit as well as licit enterprises and governmental as well as other entities. And so uh, being part of the government does not insulate you from a racketeering charge. Okay, Albert. Well, they may not need a mob, Morgan, but they may have one <laughs> with the Trump people, I'll tell you. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit more about, uh, about uh, Fannie uh, Willis, um, her reputation, how tough, how smart, what kind of outside people she's bringing in. Well, I, I, you know, I think as uh, uh, was suggested or implicit in uh, James' last question, um, she's been very successful. She's a good prosecutor. And in the Atlanta public schools system case, which was tried in 2014, uh, she brought in a special product prosecutor named uh, John Floyd, who's a partner at an Atlanta law firm, and is not only considered the expert on Georgia RICO cases, but is widely considered the national expert on state RICO statutes in general, and has written a couple of books for the ABA about that. And he's been brought in as a special prosecutor or special consultant in this case as well. And that was a big signal, at least to local people, (laughs) that the RICO side of this was very serious. And these two very experienced and successful lawyers were taking that very seriously. I, I mean, that certainly when they hired John, that caught my attention right away. Yeah, I, everything I hear about her is good. She did make one mistake, it, it appears. The judge disqualified her from bringing action against the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor, who appears to be knee-deep in any conspiracy because <laughs> she, she held a fundraiser for his, his opponent. She has to be careful, doesn't she? Well, I think, yeah, and that, it's, that actually, that just happened this week. That's brand new. Uh, one of the things to note is that um, the uh, candidate for lieutenant governor was one of 16 of what were known as the fake electors. Electors, that, yeah. That, uh, 
signed documents that were sub- submitted actually on behalf of the president, even though they weren't the approved state electors. Um, and all 16 have been subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury and have been notified that they're targets of the grand jury, all again, just in the last week. And this one person uh, uh, of the 16, only one, and this is the lieutenant governor, has been removed by a, a trial judge in Georgia from that investigation by the Fulton County DA, because as you said, she not only supported, but put on a fundraiser for his uh, Democratic opponent. Now, I think, I'm not an expert on this, but I think that that was done during the Democratic primary. And, she, mm-hmm. and I think her argument was, you know, I was just supporting a Democrat. But the judge said, look, this, you know, <laughs> this looks really bad. And, you, you know, you can do, investigate the other 15, just not this guy. So it may well be that he, uh, the, the uh, Council of District Attorneys in Georgia, uh, the official body will appoint someone to investigate him. I don't know. This is all brand new news. He may not be investigated. So he or, or he may not be off the hook. Let me ask you one more question before turning back to James. Uh, the impression we have here from some people who have a pretty good sense of it is that Fulton County is going to go before before Merrick Garland or the feds take any kind of make any move. On the federal level, the protocol is you usually don't take any action close to an election. Would you think that would be the case down there, or is that not uh, as relevant as it is in the federal level? You know, I don't know that there'll be action before the November election. I really, I really don't, I don't think anybody does. Um, right. But it, it's certainly not uh, the same. <laughs> and again, these institutional uh, constraints, this culture of the Justice Department, which has been very reticent over decades about going after a president or a former president. Yeah. Uh, and there are lots of good reasons for that. But again, that doesn't constrain here. And we're talking about crimes allegedly committed in Georgia in, ni- in 2020 and 2021. Uh, and it takes a while to build a complicated case. And I think that the district attorney's office will uh, bring the charges when they feel they've got a case if they bring the charges. So it may be before November. It may not be. I mean, her term, her term will last past November, so it doesn't have to be. James. Uh, so, uh, Counselor, I, uh, I also have, uh, the former Mayor Shirley Franklin and I held the fundraiser for Charlie Baylor, Bailey, <laughs> who is the governor's candidate, just to get all our entanglements out in front of people. And, of course, uh, Charlie worked for Fannie Wills for, for for quite a while, and they worked together. He was a uh, uh, pr- prosecutor in that uh, Atlanta yep. school case. But, uh, you know, but, but it's amazing, what I, and I really appreciate you being on the show, and I'll, I'll just tell you a backstory, is Walter Dellinger was our chief legal counsel oh. to the show. And, I, you know, we're talking about I got a law professor for memory, and, you know, Walter always spoke English. He never spoke like a law professor. <laughs> and I, I was concerned, but l- let me tell you, you're in the, you're in the Walter Dellinger tradition. You're a law oh, professor man. that speaks English and that can explain oh, things to people like well, me. And Well, that's, so, a, that's, that's about as good a compliment as a law professor can get because Walter Dellinger is, you know, uh, just a great figure, both in, in the constitutional law, but in academia, too. So I can't right. tell you how... I've got that, you know, you can see I've got a big smile on my face, but I'm very honored by that compliment. 
and he was a North Carolinian. Uh, yes, he and, was. Uh, and I really mean that. I, I think you've just done a terrific job of explaining to Al and I and our listeners, you know, exactly what this RICO law is and, you know, what's required. And I, but I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much. Al, is there anything else you want to add? Well, I, I want to second everything James just said, Morgan. I think uh, we miss Walter Dellinger every week, and particularly these last uh, this last month or so. Walter Dellinger, if he's looking down, is going to be so pleased and proud that we had Morgan Cloud on to explain <laughs> this, because you really did. So thank you so well, much. Well, thank and, you so much. And if I can if I can help out again in the future, let me know. It's a pleasure. Uh, we, we, we will let you know. We, we, we will, for sure, because okay. you can really explain complex legal problems in a way that, that even I can understand because if you want to hide something from me, I guess you stick it in a law book. And he went to law school. So even yeah. I can understand it. Yeah. And Morgan, please say hi to Claire and Tom. I will. They're in France right now, but when they get back, I will tell them. Great. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, a question and answers again. So many good ones this week, James. Uh, we'll start with Tom in Vancouver, Washington. That's a lovely, lovely place. Should Democrats nationalize the midterms? Newt did it in 1994, but with not much else going on for Democrats now, why not? Yeah, why not? They're going to be nationalized anyway. I mean, you can't run in this environment and say, well, I want to talk about potholes here in Vancouver. That's not going to work. And you have to embrace it, but just remember, Joe Biden is part of the national dialogue, all right? So is the Supreme Court, so is Mitch McConnell. You have tools at your disposal, and you're not going to fight the nationalization of this thing. It's it's got because it, it's a national election. Doesn't do any good to try to fight it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I agree, and you make it a contest uh, between us, the Democrats, uh, versus them, the Republicans. And it's uh, uh, right. someone, every, everybody ought to read that incredible Axios uh, series by Jonathan Swan on the plans the Trump people are making for 2024. And there are a lot of other Republicans involved with that, you know, to basically do away with civil service protection. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you make abortion an issue in most states, you make guns an issue in most states, and you certainly make, uh, you know, health care an issue. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, the the one other point, uh, uh, read Rick Scott's plan. He is the chairman of the National Republican Senate Committee. He's funding all of these candidates, all right? He doesn't think, he thinks hotel maids don't pay enough in taxes. Read that plan. Mitch McConnell, who I am told is a National Republican, wants to bring you know, uh, 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 wants to codify the Dobbs decision in a vote in the Senate. So bring it on. Let's have a national election. Don't shy away from it. Embrace it. Okay. You got that message, Tom. Uh, James, the next question is from Bob in in Martown, Virginia. Isn't that where you live? No, I live there. That's my place. I don't know if you know Bob. I got married. I know. I was there. Right, was, you and right, I. It's a beautiful part of the, the world. One of the great ceremonies of all times, presided right. over by uh, former Mayor Mitch Landrieu. Absolutely. Um, Bob Martown. Bob's got a good question. He said, in light of Donald Trump weaponizing the various political agencies, do you find it believable that the Secret Service texts were inadvertently deleted for January 5th and 6th of 2021? 
Bob, that's the easiest question I've ever been asked. The answer is no. There was no way this was inadvertent. Those were the two crucial days involving the Secret Service, the text and the issues with Trump protection and what he wanted to do. And this is the biggest scam since Rosemary Woods, 18-minute gap. Uh, they've the, the number of people, have the archivists as well as the uh, members of Congress has asked for a new inspector general to come in. The existing inspector general knew about this last December and didn't tell Congress. So uh, I think absolutely uh, there ought to be a huge investigation. And James, you know, you and I are not exactly technological wizards. But they have a remarkable capacity to recover stuff sometimes that are deleted. So I hope someone's working on that. So I'm going to tell you about my friend Morrowtown. He knows what a Trump sign looks like. I think there were <laughs> nine from between Highway 11 and my place, like a mile and three quarters. So we got, but we got you and Bob. Yeah, I think Bob knows what a Trump sign looks like. No, I, I, I reject a comparison to Rosemary Woods because Rosemary Woods was a secretary. All right, and probably a, a, a Nixon loyalist who 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 took shorthand and transcribed things. The secret United States Secret Service is sworn, sworn to uphold the Constitution, is sworn to protect the president, is sworn to be professional, has some has huge budgets that is very technologically sophisticated, and what they did is substantially worse than anything that Rosemary did. Rosemary Wood did. These people are a disgrace. They're traitors. They're violating their oath. They're disgracing the government of the United States, the tradition of the Secret Service. And, you know, I, I have been fortunate, and I've talked to other people that have been around the president, around the Secret Service. And those guys, they never spoke to you unless if they were always professional and nice. They didn't engage in anything. There was like a, a real distance. They didn't want to go out and have dinner with you. They didn't want to have drinks with you. They were courteous. And what has happened to this organization, known correctly for its professionalism and its patriotism, they have disgraced themselves. Tony Ornato yeah. is a disgrace to the Secret Service, and the people that enabled him is a disgrace to all these agents that I know that I've come across with, you know, people like Paul that travel, you know, and people that travel with presidents know them. And, and, and you know, because you see them, you're around them. And, and they were always extremely professional and, you know, modestly distant as they, as they should be. So this is, this is way worse than that. These people are a disgrace to the United States. Well, I agree, and I'll tell you who I think is going to break more stories about this is the great Carol Lenig of the Washington Post. Anybody that knows this, uh, and if I were if I were those Secret Service uh, uh, officers, executives who did this, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to see Carol Lenig around. She is really, really good. I, I see her on TV sometimes. Boy, she and she's very good. factual. She's very professional. You know, she's very. She does a good job. I agree with you. I don't know her, but she's, I, 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 I don't know either. My wife does, but she's just her. a hell of a reporter. James, you know, there. I, I think they're all, I don't know how many hometowns you have. This isn't quite your hometown, but it's Lafayette, Louisiana. And Sherry right. wants to know what you think of Democratic candidate Gary Chambers Jr. What can Democrats in Louisiana do to get out the vote? Uh, if we can, does Gary, Gary have any chance? No. That's what I thought. And, and Gary Chambers, like, ran for the House and, of course, uh, in, in, in the 2nd Congressional District. He's a, a 
one of these kind of activists, you know, left-wing activists from Baton Rouge. His announcement was him lighting a joint. Okay, I don't care if somebody smokes marijuana. I probably took a toke or two myself. I, I hardly think that's what the Democratic Party in Louisiana needs. And he has an outstanding opponent, a, a, a guy by the name of Luke Mixon, who's a former is a, is a uh, former Air Force pilot. Oh, this is a primary. Delta Airlines pilot, is a farmer in a Vols parish, which is the same parish my mother is from. Uh-huh. And, and I, I, I think Gary Chambers is an idiot. And okay, Sherry, you heard it here I first. I think he's a tool of the Republican Party. You got to go okay. elsewhere, Sherry. Um, yeah. James, our next question is from Rebecca in Colorado. Doesn't tell us where, but still going to ask the question. She, she does tell us that she's in Lauren Boebert's district. Of course, that covers the whole right, western slope. That's a lot, but she's that on is the a huge slope. part of Colorado. Right, uh, right. It covers almost three quarters of the state. She won her primary by 280 votes, and here's our chance to pick up a seat. The problem is, no one knows is there a Democrat running against her. Let me tell you, Rebecca, there is. It's Adam Frisch who was a city councilor in Aspen. Uh, That's not the best place to be from for that district, but he's apparently, I've been told by people who know him, he's a very impressive guy. He's going to at least do some self-funding. And normally that's a district, they redistrict it, and I would guess it's about plus 10 Republican now. Uh, And normally you'd say no chance. It's not going to be a great Democratic year in all likelihood, and it's a plus 10 Republican district. He's got a chance. He's got a chance because he's running against Lauren Boebert, who much should get down on her hands and knees every night and thank God for Marjorie Taylor and Matt Getz, or otherwise she would be the looniest member of Congress. She has said, among other things, that same-sex marriage undermines masculinity. James, I don't know if you feel undermined. Well, but she knows something about masculinity because she met her husband, according to the police report, when he exposed herself to her when she was a teenager. So she's had some experience with masculinity. Hi, I'm Jason. You want to see my penis? I mean, Jesus Christ, okay? And, and she's really, that's a public record. I'm sorry. I, just, I, I don't even need to get a libel lawyer to say that. That That is just, just Google how Lauren Bobbitt met her husband. I mean, that that's the kind of, you know, and I said on TV, at the end of the day, they're just white trash. I know it. Yeah. And that's what she is. And she's is everybody there? unpopular. The, the Democrats should run against her all over Colorado. Yeah. Well, the guy, I mean, she also said that, that, that she's so sick and tired of hearing about this separation of church and state. I mean, what did, what did Mr. Jefferson do to us? The one thing she said that may be true, she said, I am not a witch. It kind of reminds us, remember that Delaware congressional candidate? Yeah, Christine said, O'Donnell. Christine O'Donnell, who was, the, who was running as the anti-masturbation candidate, she also said she wasn't She didn't uh, get my vote. So I want to tell you, though she's anti, uh, I want to tell you, Rebecca, Adam Frisch, uh, and I, you know, may be a long shot, but it's a shot. You take your shot where you got it. Sometimes you just have to take a stand. Yeah. And if you can't take a stand against Lauren Boebert, you can't take a stand against anything. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Yeah. James Kelly in New London, Connecticut, asked, how effective is Vice President Kamala Harris in explaining and representing the Democratic agenda? She doesn't seem to be, Kelly worries, that effective in the overall message. You know, I I, I read these stories. I'm not... Some extent, the the Biden people don't really include her in much. Mm-hmm. And she, it, it seems to me from a distance, and I, I, I know her but hardly well, 
it, it seems from a distance that she's, I'm, I'm pretty sure about this, that they, they kind of didn't want to pick her and they thought it was a kind of safe politically thing to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, but I don't know. And if, if you know, she's certainly going to, a force. She is a vice president. She was a senator from California, but but she seems a a, a little unconnected right now. And I'd be polite and say that. Yeah, and, and I, I think you're not, right. Not you know, really breaking through anywhere. There have been a couple models, and they're not following any of them. Eisenhower sent Nixon an around the world trip, right. um, uh, and but the best model was the one that that Fritz Mondale and and his aide. Dick Moe came up with in the beginning of the Jimmy Carter uh, administration, which is the vice president is included in everything. And no one had any doubt something happened to Carter, that Fritz Mondale was well-prepared. No one had any doubt something happened to Clinton, that Al Gore was well-prepared. No one had any doubt if something happened to George W. Bush, that Dick Cheney was well-prepared. And so I think some of the blame for Kamala's uh, problems, if you will, rests with the, uh, the Biden team. Yeah, I don't know, I, but she's she definitely there's definitely a problem. Yeah, it's Henry in New Orleans asked oh. me this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of time to answer it. Why do mainstream newspapers enter into confidentiality agreements with their sources, which protect the sources even in the event that is established that the sources have out and out lied to the newspaper for political purposes? Henry, let me give you a let me give you a longer answer than you expected on this one. First of all, we give. We give sources too much protection from anonymity. We sometimes let people take gratuity shots, gratuitous shots. And when a source tells you something, it doesn't mean, uh, unless it's someone that you really, really trust totally, it doesn't mean you shouldn't check it out. There's, there, there's two other things, too. There's a difference, as Norman Perlstein outlined in the, uh, in the Valerie Plame case uh, over a decade ago, between confidential sources and anonymous sources, or which we call usually deep background. Confidential source is somebody who tells you something, maybe it's deeply, deep intelligence, a lot of the people, people that Bob Woodward uh, relies on, which would really endanger them, uh, their profession, everything else if they were revealed. And when you give someone a confidential guarantee, that means no matter what, you'll go to jail for him if you have to. And there have been examples of that. Unfortunately, one of the best examples in Washington was Judy Miller, who was a reckless reporter uh, on, a, on, a, on a story. But uh, as far as an anonymous or deep background, if you explain that to the source, and by the way, the term off the record is a term everybody uses carelessly. Uh, that's not the term you want to use. But if you take something on deep background, it means you're going to protect them unless there's a legal action or something, at which point then it changes and you make that clear. And finally, I would say on the question of when they out and out lie, Bob Novak uh, would frequently quote uh, people anonymously. And one time he quoted as, uh, somebody from the CIA, I think it was back in the mid-90s, and it ended up later this guy Robert Hansen was a Soviet spy. And Novak decided that that ended his pact of confidentiality and revealed him. And I think he was probably right. So uh, I, I'm sorry the answer is so long, Henry, but I think it's an important, if complicated, issue. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's a complicated issue. What's clearly uncom uncomplicated is the New York Times totally disgraced itself in 2016 when it made an agreement with this guy that wrote this book, Clinton Cash, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Yeah, it I know you mean. It was a thoroughly discredited book, thoroughly discredited, and the New York Times brought great shame on themselves 
by making this kind of arrangement. And if you ever bring it up to one of them, they'll change the story so fast you won't believe it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, and of course, any to to be fair, any institution can make mistakes. I, I, I don't think there's a single defender of that decision. No, I agree. Even great newspapers, of which the Times at the top of the list makes mistakes, and that was clearly one of them. Um, James, our final question is from Nick in Billings, Montana. Oh, wow. I like that. I and love Billings. We're going to blow love Montana. This. I got a lot of friends. The Governor Bullock, the Senator Tessa, oh. uh, Jim Messina's out there. You know, Rom that, has that, a place there. Clancy DeVoe, yeah. Uh, you know, I, 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 Tom Brokaw, it's incredible. You know, that may be the most, there are a whole lot of beautiful states out there. That may be the most beautiful. It really is. And I'll tell you something. For those, for those uh, old folks out there, uh, one of the great Senate majority leaders and one of the great public citizens in the history of America was Mike Mansfield. So I have a great, I, I share your great affection for Montana. Uh, but Nick asks, is the Republicans' winner-take-all primary system uh, by state, or national, uh, is that a good idea? Uh, does such a system tend to favor the front? We're talking about presidential primaries now. Favor the front runner when they have to change it to proportional before 2004. But James, broaden that. Is winner take all a good or a bad idea in presidential primaries? You know, the, 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 the most dangerous thing you can do is give a bunch of Democrats a pencil to draw up a rule book. <laughs> and... and I, I I don't know. I it, it, I'd be kind of uh, kind of interested that you know in, in your context. I said the argument we're going to take off is that's the way elections are, are won. Mm -hmm. All right. The the, the the you know and of course this is one of the difficult things in our democracy. It's always the rights of a minority and a majority. I kind of think there's some validity to proportional representation. I do too. And maybe it's because it, sometimes it can drag things out a little longer, which some people say good is bad, but you want to hear from voters. But I, 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 I'm not very... I'm not very fixated on it. I just like... I'm just a guy that I'm not a rule maker. You know, I'm a game player. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, these rules have gotten so complicated and you got caucuses and then you have certain people have... One of the things that happened in 2008 is the Hillary people never read the rule book. In December of 2007, Mark Penn, who is the chief strategist for the Clinton campaign, and I know this, it's verified, thought that California was winner take all. It was winner take all, yeah. That, that's a substantial error. That's like not knowing that you can intercept a pass. All right, I mean, that, that's the equivalent of that. And also what happened was is that the, the rules were written in such a way that after you went to a certain threshold, you had accelerated. So, so say North Dakota had a caucus. Well, who cares about the North Dakota caucus in a Democratic nominating process? But the truth of the matter is the Obama people really organized them. And as opposed to the North Dakota caucus, if, 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 if the, the rules I can't quite understand, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. You, you got way more delegates than you should have gotten. And it, whatever the rules are, the campaign has got to read the rule book. Right. 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 And they, they're kind of legendary people whose whole life is like delegate selection and delegate counting. They're an entirely different 
part of the realm than I am, but I tell you what, I paid attention to him like crazy in 92. I can't remember the name of our guest who we had on about two years ago, who was the guru for uh, Obama in that campaign. I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on it. Right, I, I can't either, but, but that's a, a, a primary. Actually, Hillary got more votes than Obama in 2008. Now, it's hard to determine, is it Puerto Rico... You know, caucus votes, primary votes. No, the big votes. difference was Michigan and Florida, which were, you know, outside of the, they were ruled out, and that's how that right. happened. Right, and that was, right. the, you know, and that, that that was, like, huge. But it doesn't, but again, I'm, I don't want to revisit the 2008 campaign, all right? But I'm saying it's is— one of our that, few that, real it, disagreements, it, it, James. you got to read the frickin' rule book. Yeah, that's true. Right. Well, these are great questions. James, I left out one, and I hate to leave out one, but I'm at least going to tell you how it was prefaced. This was Dan in St. Louis who said, uh, Dan must be young because he said, my dad sat with Mr. Carville and his wife at a conference years ago. As a Republican, my dad commented to me that James Carville was a very smart man. James's wife told my dad, oh, you're from a swing state. So <laughs> hear it for Mary. <laughs> you know, I, I was reading. Uh, I was. I was. I was in. You know, Kansas, Kansas City, St. Louis got like eight inches of rain in seven hours. Oh God! Oh, you know, man. I mean, that's a that's a that's a that's a great town. They, 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 that's a Kansas real City is there. a great town. Both of them. I, yeah. Kansas City is a just yeah. awesome place, and it they have great arts community there. Uh, Someone asked me, we had friends out there, is there any difference between Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri? I don't think so. Uh, You know, well, I went, I did a a, a black church some Monday morning in Kansas City, but really, really uh, cool uh, pastor. Uh, I I think that Kansas City, Missouri is is a little more affluent, but you don't remember, you, you think the Missouri River separates them. That's not true. Yeah. It's part of it. It does, but the Missouri River goes right through Kansas City. But it it's uh it, it's a good you know, uh, Wyandotte County is, is where Kansas City, Kansas is. But all of the growth in that east, a lot of most of the growth in that eastern Kansas has been in Johnson County, uh-huh. the largest county by population by far in Kansas. Well, it is a it's a it's a terrific town. Right, it uh, is, and. Uh, Okay, so keep those, please keep those uh, questions coming because they are so good and those we don't get to this week, we may well get to next week. Okay, James, now for the outrage of the week. Tom Cotton, the smart and often nasty senator from Arkansas, went on the Trump-loving Hugh Hewitt's radio show, and he blasted the January 6th committee saying that the other side, I know, what's the other side? Is that Trump and the mob? It wasn't represented. He also admitted, as Liz Cheney noted, that he didn't watch any of those hearings he was blasting. You know, he might have learned something if he had watched them. Most of us did. As for the one-sidedness, Senator, you might recall last year when the House passed an independent bipartisan commission to look into January 6th, modeled after the 9-11 commission. You opposed it. So you really can't talk about one-sidedness now. James, Arkansas used to be represented in the Senate by the likes of J. William Fulbright, Dale Bumpers, David Pryor. What a come down. It's really, it's sad, you know, it really is. For my outrage, I think 
somebody that's vying for the title of the biggest asshole in America. Let me tell you, there, there's a lot. There, there's a lot of people climbing that summit. All right, but uh-huh. I, I got to put Doctor Oz in there with the best of them. Oh. There's a story in the Daily Beast. That, 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 I'm taking candy from a baby, James. <laughs> right. There, there's something called the Armenian Genocide, which is a historical fact, where the Turks just literally wiped out Armenians. And he has got a, a apartment in New Jersey that he owns, and he's housing a bunch of Ar- Armenian genocide deniers. These are the equivalent of Holocaust deniers, just so you know what that is, all right? These are the kind of people that say, well, slavery had a good side. And I, I know a lot of Armenians, I work for one in in Mr. Unikin down in Argentina, paid his bills on time, really liked him. But this is unbelievable that this guy, in anybody, just Google John Oliver, Dr. Oz, this guy is in, in real contention. I mean, real contention. And, and I'll put them all up there with him. You know, like I say, you know, Rudy, Josh Howley, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, you know, uh, Bobard, uh, Margie Taylor Green. I, 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 I think Oz might be inching ahead here coming into the stretch. Well, he, you know, he's always been a loyal voter in Turkey. He voted in Turkey in 2018. But, but, uh, but then again, you know, let's be fair, he voted in New Jersey in 2020. And now he's running where, in Pennsylvania? Uh, yeah. And he, he, he's a pro-genocide. It's one thing to be pro-life. It's, how can you be pro-life and pro-genocide at the same time? Somebody Dr. explain Oz. that to me. And anybody out there, go to YouTube and look at some of the, some of the Fetterman ads uh, against him. They are marvelous. He has one with one of the Jersey girls saying, you know, Dr. Oz, we know you're one of us. We know you're going to come back to New Jersey. And he, he, he rented a, they got a plane with a big banner to go up and down the New Jersey beaches saying, you know, Dr. Oz is one of us in New Jersey. Right. They're pretty great. effective, and, and I, you know, I, you you lived in Pennsylvania, and I worked there, and th- there's a healthy rivalry between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. <laughs> right, I've, I've met very few Pennsylvanians who wanted to be represented by a by a New Jersey guy or gal. So, okay. Hey, thank you for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our recent sponsors. They're listed in our episode show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them, you know, because when you do, it makes this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.